0: Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 20. We're going to finish up just a short two week series of messages today called Followers about what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Our uh, purpose statement as a church is we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus. And so, what does that followers mean? And we talked, this isn't, uh, this doesn't get everything. It's not uh, something that encapsulates everything about what it means to be a follower. But two of the most important things, we talked last week about love and how that we ought to be characterized, that the forward expression of who we are as Christians is love. And then this week, we're going to talk about a second major thing that's a part of what we do as believers. Now, I want to tell you that all of this... um, All of this decoration around the church and studying, I'll be helping to to teach in a class this week during VBS, and so looking over the VBS material and thinking about all that we do um, got me thinking about games and gaming and all those fun board games that we have and things that we like to do as a family and video games and all of that. And it reminded me that sometimes we forget the impact that games have on our society. In fact, I don't know whether you saw this headline or not recently, but there was a game that came out. Now, now, we talk sometimes, you'll see sometimes in the press about movies that come out and big opening weekends over three-day weekends. And For instance, a movie came out this weekend of Across the Spider-Verse, made about $120 million in three days, and it's a huge story, right? And It ought to be. It's a big story. It's a lot of money. But recently, there was a game release that sold 10 million copies in three days. And in those three days, 10 million copies, what you have to understand, a ticket for, uh, for this game to buy the game was not even though movie prices are ridiculously 14, 15, 16 dollars it was not that. The price for this game was either 70, 100 or 130 dollars. Now, I don't know if you do real quick math, but 10 million units sold at 70 dollars a unit is somewhere around 700 million dollars. Or most people think that this company made a billion dollars in three days. That's kind of significant, right? And my guess is most of you in this room either haven't heard of it and definitely haven't played it. Now some of you have. Anybody know what the game is? It's a Zelda game, right? There we go. Here's a picture of it. Since y'all are, I know y'all, so now you're gonna all run out and buy it this afternoon. You got $70. The Legend of Zelda, The Tears of the Kingdom. 10 million copies in three days. Now, here's the deal. I, I haven't played Tears of the Kingdom. I, the game before this, that was the one that, that set the standard, Breath of the Wild. Eli played. Luke played. I did not play as much as I love Zelda. Because for me, this is not Zelda. I grew up in a different time. I heard. I hear I grew up in a different time, and there is a nostalgic part of me that remembers in the spring of 1988 when I convinced my parents to buy for me, for the very first time, a $50 game. This was the game in its original form. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? This is the Legend of Zelda for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was the first game that saved your progress. You could actually save where you were. It was gold. Now, not actual gold, although my mom and dad were convinced it had to be to have to pay that much money for a video game. And I remember getting it and pulling it out and just admiring it and sliding it into my Nintendo Entertainment System and pushing it down and it not loading and pulling it out and blowing on it and pushing it back in and pushing it down, pressing little ends a little bit to make sure it connects. And then a world opened up to me, something like this. All right. But here's the deal about The Legend of Zelda. When I first got it, I got it. It dropped you off in the middle of a field with an opening you went in the opening you got a tool sword you walk out you walked up to the top and there were these little guys that you could kill with the sword you went here and you went there and that was it i didn't have a clue what to do in the game like literally the first three weeks i had the game i had no idea what to do and today if i had no idea to do what would i do i would look up google it that's an old generation we would youtube it right that's instagram it snap it something right so uh, google's we're all, us google people are old now all right and so that's what i would do back then we didn't have youtube or google or the internet or the, well i did have a computer it was a commodore vic 20 you had to plug into your tv um I, I, we didn't have any of that stuff. And so I had to convince my parents to buy a $25 book that told you how to play the game on top of my $50. But I remember the helplessness of opening this and not wanting to admit to my parents they spent $50 on a game. I had no idea what to do with it. All right, what does that have to do with anything, Pastor? Right? That's what you're asking right now. Here's the deal. I'm convinced that there are a lot of people who are followers of Jesus Christ that have no idea what to do with him. They have no idea what that means, what that looks like, what the actions they are to take, the adventure that they're to be on. Zelda was a great adventure game, but I didn't unlock it until I figured out what it was about. And once I did, I loved it. But there are a lot of people that are living the life of trying to be a Christian and they haven't unlocked yet the potential of what that adventure looks like. And part of the reason for that is because they have forgotten... That at the essence of who we are is a commissioning by Jesus. Look at John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 19. When it was evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, peace be with you. Now let's just stop there for a minute. We've got to get the scene here. We're in John chapter 20, so this is after the resurrection, this is after the crucifixion, this is after the arrest of Jesus, this is after the Last Supper, and in fact, Jesus gives them a quote here that they would have recognized as normal kind of quote of peace be with you. What is fascinating about this first little verse, and just three or four verses we're going to look at here, is how normal jesus is when he enters into a room that is locked all the way around and just simply says hey guys peace be with you would have been the hey what's up man now a couple of details that are here that let us know how extraordinary this is what do they say about the doors here they're locked Why are they locked? Well, because their leader just got arrested and crucified for everyone to see, and they were not convinced that they weren't next, and so they're hiding. They're scared, as you would be, as I would be. They're figuring out the next steps. What do we do now? What's going on next? Where do we go? How do we get out of town without being noticed? Well, let's just go hold ourselves up in a room for a little bit. We'll lock the doors, and then when all of this passes, when Passover is done, when we get through with this big cell, celebration will sneak out of town as the rest of the group is sneaking out. They didn't have facial recognition technology by then. It'll be simple. We'll just get in with the crowd and we'll get out of town. But until then, we're going to lock ourselves in a room with no way to get in or out and we will be safe. And then Jesus just appears. It doesn't tell us what happens here. We don't know if he phased through walls. We don't know if he just Suddenly appeared out of thin air. We don't know if he descended through the roof. But it's evident that he got in a way that none of us can get in. And he just stops and says, what's up guys? Peace to you. This was the normal Jewish greeting. If they weren't freaked out, at that moment they would have been freaked out a little, right? Right? Are you here, right? Verse 20. Having said this, knowing that, you know, they might go, ah, we're, not, we're not sure this is you, Jesus. I know you're just kind of a period of thin air, but who are you? He showed them his hands and his side, and so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So it took them just a moment, and they realized that this is He. And verse 21 says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Again, hey guys, what's going on? As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 21 is an extremely significant statement coming at the end of John's gospel. Because Jesus' primarily primary identity throughout the entire book of the John has been known as the one who was sent or the sent one. And repeatedly throughout the gospel, Jesus' main designation for God has been the Father who sent me. In fact, next time you read through the Gospel of John, circle the word sent every time you read it. And depending on the translation you're reading, you're going to circle somewhere around 60 or more times that the word sent is used in this Gospel. And in these final conversations with the disciples, before he ascends back to the Father, he passes his primary identity from the Gospel of the sent one on to us, to all of us. Everyone else who would follow him that flows out of this baseline identity of who he is. And for the believer, who we are and where we are going, what it means to be a follow is intertwined with our identity in Jesus. If we forget who we are, you really can't know what you're supposed to do. And as Jesus identified as the sent one, he has transferred that to us and we are sent Like he was. And that means whatever else we do in life, regardless of whatever else we do in life, whatever our profession is, or our personality is, or what our spiritual gifting is, or where we live, or what we're about, we are sent by Jesus. These words, verse 21, are Jesus' words, not just to those apostles gathered in the room up there. By the way, the word apostle literally means the sent one. These are the words of Christ to you. Every gospel has a great commission in it. Matthews is the most famous perhaps. Luke does his in Acts as 1.8 the, as, as the second part of the volume of his writing about the life of Jesus and the continued work of the Holy Spirit. And they all have the same idea. I am now giving you the sending call on my life to your life. Take it. You are now the sent ones. And think about this. Of all the things Jesus could have said here. As he's gathered with his disciples, the first thing he says of all the things he could have said, he could have said, you will be my worshipers, or you will be my prayer warriors, or you will be my Bible studiers, or you will be my justice advocates. All of those would have been true. But what he is saying here is you will be my sent ones and actually my witnesses, the ones that are sent to give testimony about who I am and what I have done. You have been Sent For some of you that may be intimidating You're like sent one I don't know how to do that I don't know where to start with that the good thing is Jesus promised to always be with us. He even promised his disciples at the very beginning. The first apostles he called, he says, he will make you a fisherman. He didn't say, follow you and make yourself. He says, I will do it. In John 15, 16, he says, I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bring forth fruit. That he is going to make us followers of Jesus, fruitful individuals that bring glory to his name. And for that purpose, he has called us. Here's what's also interesting about this call for them. It would have been a call back to just a couple of days ago that must have seemed like months. When they were in the upper room and Jesus is teaching in his most extended discourse of teaching in the entire Gospels. And he says to them at one point in there, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the time for you to go. And so Jesus is pointing them towards us and saying that you are now Sent. And if you feel this morning like, well, good luck with that, Jesus. I, I don't have much potential or I'm kind of not prepared or competent in that way. Jesus has declared that he has appointed you to bring forth fruit and the same power that he opened the eyes of the blind and the same power that walked on water and the same power that multiplied the loaves and the fishes is working in you to give you the ability to live out the calling on your life. You are sent so here's what I want to do for the rest of this kind of time together is I want to look well what does that mean what does that look like what is it meant by his sending is now our sending now just a few observations from all of scripture new testament to primarily the gospels that gives us an understanding of what that means and the first thing is this that his mission is now our mission Another way to think about that is his purpose is now our purpose. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Well, his mission is our mission. And we know that his mission is laid out multiple times in scriptures in lots of places. In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 14, he says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. What, what was his Mission, it was to save the world. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, you remember where this story is, right? This is the story of Zacchaeus. A wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when he does... The Lord calls him to come down, and he goes to his house, and people start grumbling. Can you believe Jesus is eating with that guy? Can you believe Jesus went to the tax collector's house? No one reputable would ever go there. And Jesus comes out and says, I have come to speak and to save the lost. That's my mission. John chapter 3, verse 17 says, for God did not send his son. This is the one right after the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So what was his mission? His mission was the salvation of the world. How or what was involved in that? What was he doing in order to do that? Well, there were really three parts of that plan for him. And the first was that he was going to reveal who the father was. In John 14, 9, it says that he has rescued us. Or, wait, excuse me. In John 14, 9, it says, he says to Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The, the scripture calls Jesus the exact representation, the spitting image of God. And part of the reason, or one of the parts of his mission in coming to earth was that he came to reveal who the Father truly is. And passed on to us part of our responsibility, part of our Calling, part of our mission in life, is to reveal to a world that is in need the glory and the majesty and the love and the holiness and the strength of our God. We are to live our lives as witnesses, as testimony to who God is. Now, Jesus revealed exactly who God is, perfectly who God is. We will not do that because you and I are not perfect. Jesus is. But that doesn't mean his mission isn't transferred to us anyways. We are to live our lives as loving as God would be. We are to live our lives as holy as God would be. We are to live our lives in a way that shows the majesty and the glory of our God. So part of his mission of salvation was to reveal the Father because people needed to realize they had a Father in heaven who wanted a relationship with them and was drawing them back to himself. The religious leaders of Jesus' day and the religious system of Jesus' days had misinterpreted and misdescribed who God the Father was. And part of Jesus' task was to say, this is who we serve. There may not be a day since the first century when a watching world needs to better understand the God we serve than today. Because if we're honest with ourselves, our lives and the lives of churches and organizations and leaders who call themselves Christian leaders have often time demonstrated the fallen nature of our lives much more than the greatness of our God. Part of our mission and being sent once is to be a representative for him. Jesus not only came to reveal the Father, he also came to redeem us from sin. Colossians 1, 13-14 said he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption. In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That the reason Jesus came was to reveal the Father, yes, but then to pay the price to redeem us, to bring us back, to purchase us back from our own sin to deliver us from the sin of our lives. The the issue that we have in our lives is the sin that we so easily allow to entangle us and to pull us down. The disobedience we have in following God that is at the essence of all of our hearts. And Jesus came to not only pay the price for our sins, but to pull us out of it in order that we could live a life empowered by Him, to live a life more dedicated to Him, and eventually to rid us not only of the penalty of sin but also the presence of sin and ultimate glorification and and salvation as part of our mission it is our job to reveal to people the need for a savior and that he has come and that he has paid the price and that he is risen We are to reveal the Father as Jesus did. We are to redeem people from their sins. Now, let me say this very clearly. I do not mean that it is our job to redeem them. That is Jesus' job still. Only God can do that. But it is our job to point them to their need for redemption and the source of their redemption. And then the last thing that Jesus did as a part of his mission in this threefold idea is that he raised up the church to be his body. Matthew sixteen eight he says that I will Build this church, my church. Remember, Peter gave a confession and he said, On the basis of your understanding of who I am, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is our responsibility to take the church that has been passed from generation to generation to generation, now for almost 2,000 years, to take that church and to pass it on to the next generation as a witness to who God is to spread His kingdom through the local church across the nations. To gather with like-minded people who are... Doing the work of God in the place that God has called us to do. That's what this church is about here at First Baptist Well, God has planted us right here at this exact location so that we can impact the, country, the culture around us, impact the county around us, the city around us, the area around us. We have people to drive in from all over this part of Nashville, even some farther away than this part of Nashville, and we are to impact the areas in which our people live for the glory of the name of the. father and for the sake of the spread of his kingdom jesus came to raise up the church to build it to be his bride that goes forth his purpose his mission is our mission here's the second thing real quickly not only is his mission our mission but his method is our method You say, well, what is that method? Well, it's not described any better than John chapter 1, verse 14. This is how he decided to come. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is in the great prologue of the book of John. At the beginning of this, we're near the end of it in John chapter 20. And he says that the word Jesus came and became flesh. The word means that He literally took on flesh. The word that we get out of that is incarnate, incarnation. That is in flesh. It means that He took on our, not only our body, He did become a human being, 100% human, 100% hundred percent God at the same time, but he also took on our filth and world. And he lived among us and he lived among relationships and he understands family relationships and he understands friendships and betrayal. He understands the cruelness and the harshness of people. In the book of Hebrews, it says we have a high priest who understands every temptation that we have, every fault that we have, every problem that he has. The way that he executed his mission, the method that he used for his mission was that he engaged himself in the lives of us and lived amongst us, incarnational living. And as the people of God who are following his mission, our job is to be in this world and not of this world. It is to put ourselves in and among the people who God loves that have not yet come into a relationship with Him and to live our lives in such a way that they see how great God is and their need for Him and we, in incarnational living, show them the love and the mercy and the grace of God and point them to Him. We look for areas that God is already working in and around our lives and we go to those areas and we work. One of the transitions that has happened in my now 20-plus years of pastoring churches, one of the real transition is there was a time, um, especially early on in my ministry, back in the um, early 2000s. When I was pastoring a county seat church, First Baptist Church in Ripley, Tennessee, county seat right there, and there was a time and then, not that long ago, when People would come to the church because that's what you did in a community. When you moved into the community, you found relationships through churches, and that's where you went. And as a church, we could put on programs, and we could put on these ideas, and we could call people, and we could do events, and we could say, Come to our church, come to our church, come to our church. And it was just a natural process. All right, we'll go to church. I don't know if you realize this, but that day has passed. doesn't work like that anymore. Today's much more New Testament. And here's the thing, nowhere in scripture does it ever tell those that are lost to go find God in the church. What it tells is those that have found and been found by Christ, we ought to go searching for the lost. We're to go into the community, we're to go into the neighborhoods, we're to serve people, we're to meet their needs, we're to help them where they need help. We are to be the hands and feet of Christ. We find out where God is working and then we join Him in that work. It's the experiencing God idea today, another way that that's described is the theology of place. And that is that we need to understand that wherever we are, God has placed us there for a purpose and a reason. And that being sent doesn't necessarily mean going to another country or another culture or another city in order to do the work of God, that God has placed you exactly where you are. And in that place, you can do the work of God. That doesn't mean that he doesn't call people to go overseas. He doesn't call people to go plant churches in other cities, but it also doesn't mean that we We can't do ministry right where we are. And some of you are called to ministry right here, right now. In fact, if you're not called to ministry somewhere else, you're called to ministry here. In your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your social circles. Wherever God has placed you, He has placed you there for a purpose. On a plane, in a rideshare. At a checkout line, we are to embody the message of Christ. And the method that we are to use is to share with them. In fact, Scripture uses all kinds of terms about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, but three of them that I'll just point out real quickly are all things that are in the community and working. One is a farmer where you're sowing seeds, you're doing that, you're cultivating, you're helping, you're out in the field. I read a story about a young boy that grew up on a farm, or actually he didn't grow up on a farm, but his grandparents lived on a farm. He grew up in the city, and one summer he got to go live with his grandparents for a few weeks. And As he went to live with his grandparents for a few weeks, he was so excited to help his grandfather with the, with the work. And so his grandfather said, well, we got to get up early in the morning. And he said, well, just wake me up and we can get you up. And so the little boy said, all I remembered was being awakened before the sun came up. Some of you grew up on a farm, you know this, and had to milk the cows and bring in some food for the morning. And had stables, had to get the mess out of the, of the stables and worked for probably an hour and a half, came in. Ate breakfast prepared by grandmother, and the little boy went to lay down. His grandfather said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Well, I'm going to bed. When the work's done." He said, "Oh, the work isn't done." He said, "The chores have been done. The work is in the fields." I think sometimes as Christians we think the work's done when we've just done the chores. We've done the stuff here at church. It's been good to people around us. Read our Bibles. Pray. And yet, Scripture makes it clear over and over again that the work is in the fields. So the Bible calls us fishermen. The key to being a good fisherman is making sure the line's out when the fish are going to bite. You don't catch any fish with the line not out. It calls us ambassadors. The, the picture there literally is like an embassy in the midst of a hostile nation. And that we are to represent our God well. His purpose, his mission is the salvation of people. His method is incarnational living. His message is our message as well. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because the message is simple. And it's encapsulated in one verse. And every one of you here can say the verse. I don't have to put it on the screen, but I will. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. That's the message. God loves us. He wants to save us. You need salvation. His son died for us. He rose again. Will you believe? We may change how we communicate that message multiple times in the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. But a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, a faithful church of Jesus Christ, will never change the essence of the message. God loves us. He cares for us. He is broken, heartbroken that we have walked away from Him, and He sent His Son to redeem us, to buy us back, and we just believe in Him. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. Not only is His... Mission, our mission, and his method, our method, and his message, our message, but his motive is our motive. There are really four motives that you see here. First of all, it's just obedience. He did this because that's what the Father called him to do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, famously, he said, Not my will be done, Lord, but yours. If you can take this cup from me, take it. But he doesn't, and he understands that this is the act of obedience. This is what God called him to do, and he followed through. Part of the reason that we are sent and deliver his message and live incarnationally and work for the salvation of people, work to see people come to Christ, is because it is what God has called us to do. It is what Jesus has told us to do. He has sent us... And we live in obedience to him. Secondly, not only obedience because of our love for people. I think of that scene where Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps and he says how I've wanted to bring you in. How I've wanted to coddle you. How I've wanted to hug you. How I've wanted to take care of you. And he loved those people and those people were getting ready to crucify him. I'm not going to rehash all of last week's message, but just know that if you don't have love in your heart for the lostness and the people around you that are lost, then you need to examine your heart before the Lord. If somebody disagrees with you and you just hate them, that's not being a follower of Jesus Christ. If somebody does something to you, I'm not talking about... um, uh, where you have to like that they did it to you. But if your immediate reaction is to hate and revenge and get even, that's not what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. We love all people because God loves all people. You have never stared in the face of anyone that God loves less than he loves you. Ever. And nor will you ever. Ever. It doesn't matter your status or your place in the world. Now let me all just say this to some of you in this room that need to hear this. You've never stared in the face of anyone God loves more than He loves you either. We are loved by God with a love that is incomprehensible. And He has that for every single human. And we ought to be an example of that to those around us. His motive was obedience to the Lord. It was love. It was also necessity. What do you mean by necessity? His motivation was that if he didn't come and save us, no one would. That without Christ, we are hopeless in this world. Without the Lord, we have no hope. John 3 verse 14 says just as Moses lifted up the stake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that Christ had to be lifted up in order for us to be saved and it was necessary here's what we have to understand as we walk amongst our neighbors the people living beside us in our neighborhood the people that we work next to in the cubicle or in the offices or the people that we interact with at the at, when we're buying coffee at Starbucks or checking out at Kroger or Publix that those people without a relationship with God are destined for an eternity separated from him It's not an option or a better plan It is the only way And that necessity motivated Jesus Jesus literally said, as we mentioned goes, the If there's any other way, God, let's do it But not my will, but yours And this is the last motive that was in his heart And I think this is something vital for us It was for the joy Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. For the joy that the truest sense of happiness in your life comes from the joy of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I'll never forget the first time that I had the opportunity to be a part of seeing someone accept Christ and being part of the ones that shared with them. It was at church camp my eighth, after my eighth grade year sitting on some steps at centrifuge with one of my classmates. We were in a circle. It was two of my friends, our youth leader at that time, and this young man. And we shared the gospel. And I'll never forget the feeling when he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. My youth leader at the time, a guy named Mike. Mike looked at him when we were done and said, Scripture says that right now they are throwing a party in heaven because the angels are rejoicing over you. Man, that is joy. I look forward to vacation Bible school more than just about any week of the year. And that's weird for a 47-year-old man. But here's the reason I do is because and I'm praying for and I'm hoping for there is a very high likelihood that at some point this week I'm going to get to sit down with somebody and I'm going to get to share Jesus Christ with them and I'm going to be there when their life changes forever. It's one of the privileges of being a pastor that I don't ever want to forget. Last year, I'll never forget, it was the last day of VBS. I hadn't had that opportunity. And I said, well, maybe, Lord, just not this week. We were flying out right away to go to the Southern Baptist Convention. It was in Los Angeles. We were going in a day early. We had our flights like at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which was the most ridiculous thing for us to plan to try to do VBS and then get on a flight. That's what it was. And so I don't have much time. And on that Friday young man wanted to talk with me. And right before I left here to go get on a plane, to go to the Southern Baptist Convention where we were going to yell at each other for a couple of days, I got to see a young man give his life to Jesus. And you talk about joy. That is what makes everything else worth it. Jesus said, As the Father sent me, I send you. That is his calling on your life. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Yes, it means leading out with love. We talked about that last week. But it means being a sent one. we we just sang about Isaiah 6. Here am I, Lord, send me. I love that story. It's part of my calling to ministry. I love the, the message of it. I love that moment when Isaiah basically says, Lord, here I am, whatever, send me. But here's the truth. When you say that to the Lord today, he says, I have. You are. Now, I understand what we're saying is, okay, in this specific question, use me, Lord. Use me there. But if we're saying, Lord, can you send me out? He goes, I did. You are. Now. Go. Because we are the sent ones. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment. That your will would be done here as it is in heaven. And Lord, that we would give you the glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.